Hey, Rebels. My name is Matthew Barton, and I'm the host of the Rebellion Brewing Podcast. Today's episode may seem counterintuitive. Why would a brewery's beer podcast ever broach a topic focused on an honest discussion about addiction and substance abuse? What business would ever honestly want to say, no, please reduce or stop consuming our product? We've seen other companies say, please consume our products responsibly, with their tongue firmly planted in their cheek. Telling customers not to buy the things you make is antithetical to the profit motive. So why would you do it? If we accept the premise that as society, we value freedom, we also must accept the consequences of that freedom. With power comes responsibility. It's not just Uncle Ben. It's a rebellion thing. We are responsible for the consequences of our actions, not just as individuals, but our collective impact as a business and members of a community. Real talk for a moment. I think the war on drugs is over. Drugs won. If the war on drugs' stated aims were to abolish addiction and end substance abuse, it's been more than 30 years. And it hasn't happened. It hasn't worked. Like prohibition and temperance before it in the 1930s, the war on drugs of the 1980s is an abject policy failure. Outside Saskatchewan, we see governments shifting tack and starting to let go of prohibition, let go of the war on drugs. They're starting to think creatively and look to alternative policy solutions to substance and addictions. Instead of just say no, we now see a new umbrella term called harm reduction. So what is it and why are non-governmental organizations like Prairie Harm Reduction taking the lead here? Jason Meckerty, the executive director of PHR, is here to explain. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Sorry for that long intro, but <laughs> big topic. How's it going? Uh, it's been going kind of nuts. It's been going, it's been like a roller coaster for five years, but it feels like in the last year and a half, uh, it's been accelerating rapidly as we prepared and then now opened our safe consumption site. So it's been a fast paced environment. That's for sure. Can you give me like the, the elevator or cliff notes of what that means? Yeah, so uh, Prairie Harm Reduction, we're based in Saskatoon and we, we operate Canada's only legal safe consumption uh, space. And so we're a safe consumption site. And so that's a, that's a place that has a medical exemption from Health Canada that people can come and, and consume uh, illegal substances um, without reprisal from the law. And really we're here to make sure that they're doing it safe. Uh, they're doing it an educated way. We're connecting them with services. Um, but in a non-judgmental manner, and um, we're just here to try to keep people alive. And it's been fairly, um, it's been fairly early on. We went into our, we just finished up our second month of operations. Um, it's been successful so far. And um, yeah, a lot of times when people think of safe consumption sites, they think it's really uh, wild west and people do whatever they want, whenever they want. But really, we're a medical facility. You come into the building, it's really sterile. And, we have over a million dollars in outreach services that we operate on and that we connect people to additional services, whether it's housing, addiction, income supports, justice supports, family supports, uh, mental health supports, um, food supports, food security issues. And so uh, we're really, um, 
we really try to do our best. And if we can't do it, that's why we have community partners and we work pretty closely with a number of people in the community, a number of workers in the community um, to try to improve uh, the community safety, reduce the harm for everybody in the community. Um, you know, but our focus for predominantly is on people who use drugs and they're dealing with mental health issues. That sounds like a very ambitious, big mandate. And it's kind of, to me, it's abstract. If I'm trying to talk to someone who maybe has never really heard of harm reduction, can we walk them through what an experience might be for somebody who wants to consume? What's it like when they walk through the door? So I think we should start first with what it's like without a consumption site. So if you want to, if you are addicted to drugs uh, and you want to use them, um, right now we have a large group in Saskatchewan. I don't think we're exempt, uh, you know, where people use drugs. A lot of times it's unseen though, you know, it's, uh, it's a kitchen worker snorting coke in the bathroom. It's a lawyer doing coke at the bars on the weekend. It's, um, you know, high school kids taking Xanax. Um, so it's a lot of stuff that you don't see. Um, but people tend to focus on the people they do see, which are usually people who are homeless, hard to house, using street-level drugs. And so what happens now is they go buy their drugs uh, from a gang member, you know, which contributes to the black market. Um, and then they, they then go shoot up in an alley. So they'll inject their drugs in an alley. Um, they'll inject their drugs in a park. They'll inject their drugs in a stairwell, apartment stairwell, basically wherever they can find a spot that they, they can do it safely as safe as possible that's what we'll do it versus when they use a consumption site they still have to get their drugs from, from the street supply which we're working on getting you know safe supply in saskatchewan but then they work and they use their drugs and so there's a major risk right now of people overdosing and this is a long going this has been since 2015 2016 across canada we're just starting to see it in 2020 with saskatchewan so fentanyls mixed into street drugs or car fentanyl so these are very potent uh, opioids that cause people to die on a very small amount, especially if they're not expecting to take that, or they're uh, opioid naive, um, they'll take it and they'll overdose. So instead of doing that, they'll come into our facility, they get met by a support worker right off the bat. Hey, how's it going? What do you need? They get registered in our database. We ask them what type of drugs they think they're using, how they plan on using them. Um, so they can inject their drugs here, they can start the drugs here, or they consume or what makes it really unique and where I'm sitting right now is in our safer smoking room. So we're you know, the only legal safer smoking room in Canada. So it doesn't matter how you wanna use drugs, you can use them in our facility uh, once they get admitted. Uh, we also take down information like, do they need housing? Do they need mental health supports? Do they need addiction supports? Um, and then once they get all registered, they go into the consumption space where they're met by our lovely paramedic Tess, who then talks to them, uh, gives them the supply, harm reduction supplies they need. They use it in our facility. They dispose of all the supplies in our facility. So then once again, that reduces the amount of uh, needle debris in the community uh, and, and the harm reduction supplies in the community. Um, as long as they have no adverse effects, they then get discharged out into our post-consumption area, which is our drop-in space. So a lot of our drop-in space, uh, when they go into that space, they we have, you know, like they said, a million dollars in support services and family support uh, services. So um, a lot of caseworkers, most we have 40, we have 42 staff, uh, 40 of our staff are frontline service providers. Um, we have a very lean administrative budget, um, so they can get met by a support worker connect them to all the supports they need, or they can just hang out. They don't have to, they don't have to leave. They don't have to access supports. But a funny thing happens when you offer people uh, a supportive environment with supportive staff or knowledgeable in addictions, people want to talk to you. They want to reach out. And so, um, you know, we do a lot of heavy lifting for case management in the neighborhood, in the, in the city. 
with quote unquote the hardest to work with folks. Uh, but that's kind of our bread and butter. And so once they're done using, they can, and they feel like it, they can leave the facility. Uh, but we're preventing them from overdosing. We're preventing needles from going out in the community. And we're giving people a space where they can engage. Uh, a lot of times people don't feel like they belong in the community. And what happens if you don't belong to the community? You have no responsibility in the community. You have no, you know, you have no place in society that's not going to do good things for them or the community. And so we're really about creating that safe space for everybody. When I talk about harm reduction, it might not mean the same thing you mean by harm reduction. What is your definition? Uh, basically, um, meet, so the, the phrase gets thrown around a lot, meet people where they're at. So what does that mean is uh, no coercion and, um, and compassion and empathy. So if I'm talking to you and I say, what do you need? Uh, and then you say, well, I really need, uh, I really need to eat. And then I say, okay, that's great, but we're going to get you in a treatment center. Um, that's not harm reduction, you know, not the treatment centers aren't harm reduction, but if I say, what do you need? And you say, I'm really sicky. I'm really hungry. I need food. And I say, okay, here's a sandwich or here's a, here's a muffin, whatever we happen to have that day. Here's a coffee. Do you need anything else? The first time it might be, no, I'm good. See you later. But usually what ends up happening when you meet people's needs that they identify as the biggest priority, they start going down the list of needs that they aren't having been met. And so if I say, Hey, you need some food and you say, yeah, and then I get you that food you need anything else yeah you know today's been a long day i'm fucking sick and tired of this life blah 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 so then we can come in and say you know what there are options for you have you ever thought about going to detox or treatment centers or do you just need somebody to talk to you mental health counselor something like that or do you need a social worker yes or no we help them through that but you help you help them down the path to recovery and the way that you do that is by listening to that individual every person is a is an expert in their own life it's really important that we listen to them. These, this is a group of people that have not been listened to. These are people that have been told what to do their whole life. And if that worked, we wouldn't be in the drug war on drugs 30 years down the line. If, if just say no and get, pull yourself up by your bootstraps work, then problem solved in 1988, you know? But we don't, we don't have that. We have, um, that approach never worked. Um, it was spun as if it did work, uh, but really it, it didn't. And it doesn't take into account the potency of the drugs anymore. Um, you know, and the social pressures that come with uh, living in poverty and, and addictions. And, and so, you know, when, when we're talking about harm reduction, the reason it's a philosophy is because it applies to everybody slightly differently. So harm reduction for me is I'm wearing my winter boots. I'm making sure I dress properly. I'm trying to eat right, trying to get exercise. That's the way I'm reducing harm at this point in my life. When I was 20, harm reduction for me was, it was easier for me to uh, drink a ton of alcohol than to deal with my mental health issues or my addictions issues or my past trauma. But as I, as I got better community connections, better social connections, I slowly got to heal on that journey. And, and we see that a lot with our folks. It's a, you're looking at a multi-year approach, not a quick fix. And I think a mistake that a lot of people make when they're thinking about harm reduction is they wanna look at an outcome within three to six months. Those outcomes don't matter because addictions is a lifelong struggle. We're talking about a lifelong success, year, two year, three year, and then making adjustments with that individual along the way. So when we're talking about harm reduction, long, long answer long is it boils down to compassion, empathy, and no coercion. What do you mean by coercion? Uh, so I'm a pretty fast talker. Um, and I could pretty much talk my way into anything and I could talk people into whatever I need to talk them into. So 
one of the reasons why I'm in the position I'm in. Uh, but um, that doesn't make it right, you know, and it doesn't mean that I'm going to have lasting change. So when we say no coercion, we mean you ask people what they need and then you help them meet those needs. I don't supplant my assumption of what their needs are. Just because I'm an executive director or maybe I'm a social worker or a nurse or a doctor, I don't know what that person needs. I might know what they need medically, but I don't know what the reason behind them doing certain behaviors. They have to exist in a world outside of your clinic or your safe consumption site or your pharmacy or whatever. And so you can't expect them to, to have all those skills and that knowledge and that buildup so that they can be successful long-term. Uh, you have to graduate them into those things. And the way you do that is just simply by talking to that person, asking them what they need, and then working with them to help them achieve those needs. And so if you're looking at a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a lot of people when they're in, uh, in the addictions, when they're dealing with somebody with addictions, they're really angry that they're not at the top of the pyramid. They want them to be in self-actualization. They want them to be, you know, really get a job. Why can't you just be clean and sober? They're not addressing the fact that maybe that person was raped from the time they were 10 till the time they were 14 and they escaped that situation. And then they were homeless from the time they were 14 or 15 until they're now 28, you know, but people don't want to deal with that trauma. They want to just say, you need to get a house and you need to stop using but if you actually want to get that, if you talk to that person, build up that relationship with that person, they'll get there eventually, but you have to help them address all these underlying concerns when they're ready to deal with it. Because if you help somebody, if you force somebody to confront their trauma before they're ready, you're actually further traumatizing them. And that's why we have such a high rate of failure in addictions uh, treatment centers is because it's often mandated that people have to go there. There's no internal motivator for that person to, to change uh, their drug use, there's no internal, and plus, you're not talking about any of the social constructs that when they leave that treatment center, they're going back into the same neighborhood, they're living in the same environment as what put them in that in the first place. And so I might be able to check off a box on my reporting that says I got X number of people into treatment. But really, if you do a deep, deep, deep dive, how many of those people were successful in the long run? A very, very, very small amount. That's not to say that you shouldn't be offering people treatment or helping them get down that path, but it shouldn't be on my timetables and my agendas. It should be on their timetable and their agenda. I know you've answered it in part, but I really want to really want to tackle head on the idea of the criticisms that harm reduction kind of faces at the outset. Uh, I've heard people say, well, it's just enabling addicts. It's uh, why would we spend tax dollars to help people get high and drunk how do you how do you respond to that uh so you're definitely already we're already spending that money uh we're just spending it on hospitalizations uh police interactions ambulance ambulance responses um uh hiv infections uh incarceration overdoses the reason we have we have we're the we're the saskatchewan's the province with the highest rates of hiv in canada infection rates of HIV in Canada has been for 13 years. Why is that? Well, it's because of shared drug equipment. And so when we're looking at public criticism, harm reduction, we have to look at why those people are criticizing harm reduction. Yeah, it's an outdated concept, but I find when I talk to people, break down the math on the, on the economics, it makes sense. The, the, the reason often people don't is, so I live in Saskatoon, I'm walking down the street, doesn't matter where it is, say downtown or whatever, and I see a needle on the street, improperly discarded needle on the street, cap off, 
Maybe it's summer, maybe I'm wearing flip-flops. Holy fuck, I almost got poked by a needle. So what does that do to that person? It makes them think these people don't pick up after themselves. It makes it seem like it's not a good investment. Uh, it's a blight on society, all those types of things. There's no question into, okay, well, we're, we're funding needle exchanges because they help reduce HIV rates and hep C infections and all those things. But there's no look at, well, why aren't we funding needle cleanup programs? Like Queen City Patrol in Regina is like all volunteer based. We've had to get private funding here so that we can hire needle patrollers to patrol around the neighborhood. Uh, we don't even give out needles. We just think it's the right thing to do. And so, but if we're not, if we're not being proactive on those things that reinforce stigma within the community, we're never going to be able to uh, have a good discussion about why these programs are needed. So first off, we need to, we need to invest on that level, not to mention it's a good employment initiative for a student or somebody in the neighborhood who are probably highest risk neighborhoods to get HIV or hep C or use drugs. So it brings all these benefits to do, be proactive on those things. But when we're, when we're looking at why harm reduction is needed, it reduces HIV infections, it reduces hep C infections. Each HIV infection that, that, can, that we happen in this, have in this province is $1.3 million over that person's lifetime in total cost to the government. Every HIV infection you prevent, that's, that's a $1.3 million savings. And a consumption site, there was a study in 2015 done on consumption sites in Saskatchewan, potential consumption sites in Saskatchewan, well, they said thought that we could prevent 15 new HIV infections. Well, that's like $18 million a year uh, in cost avoidance that we just that we just did. Not to mention that person never contracts it in the first place, so they're going to be more likely to be able to change them, you know, or to to deal with other health issues. But if they have HIV, that'll be the sole focus. But now we need we can get them introduced to mental health supports or whatever. But and we don't have to ever have that stress on them. Not to mention taking HIV medication is really draining. You have to take it every day. And so it's hard to remember to take it every day if you're street involved. Well, this person never contracted HIV, so they're not going to have to remember to take their medication. We're not going to have to pay for it. Not to mention in Saskatoon, there was a, we have a cost analysis from the health authority that showed people who inject drugs just for hospitalization. So people that got admitted to hospital in Saskatoon alone were costing $3.2 in hospitalization beds. And it's for a variety of reasons. It could be from overdose could be from deterioration of, of their health as a result of rejected drugs and then their HIV infection takes over. It could be a result of an abscess or wound care that they need to have done. So anytime you have somebody using in a safe, sterile facility, you're avoiding all those costs. So they're not having to go. And if they overdose in our facility, they don't go to the hospital. The ambulance doesn't get called. We deal with it internally and we stabilize them. And nobody's ever died in a consumption site either. So we stabilize them internally. We get them nutrient, we get them stable, then we connect, we can have those kinds of discussions about, hey, you think maybe it's time to try something else, or would you want to talk to somebody about mental health support? You know, and get them connected that way. So there's all these, there's all these financial benefits in terms of avoiding the cost within it. Uh, not to mention you're actually you're actually uh, dealing with the situation in a pragmatic way. I think too all too often when we're talking about addictions, we have pie in the sky ideas where we're like, you know, if we just tell people, if we get better drug education, people just will never use drugs. Well, I got bad news for everybody. Drugs are fun. They make you feel good. And so when somebody's trying drugs, if you're telling them it's going to kill them and they take a Xanax on at a high school party or they're doing a rail of Coke in a football game, uh, you know, they're in the locker room after a football game and that makes them feel good. All that war on drugs, just say no, doesn't apply to them anymore because they, they've passed the veil. That, that only works before people use drugs. What are you doing after people use drugs? 
because there's a lot of people and people get introduced to drugs a million ways. Your friend offers you some, you think you're smoking a joint at a party, it's actually laced with crystal meth. Like there's a million ways you can get introduced to drugs and to have the ability to just say no is, is it doesn't work. Like that's a bullshit concept that was invented by Nancy Reagan in the eighties. Like that's a, that's a woman who's basing governmental decisions on our horoscope. Like that doesn't fucking apply to today's standards. And we haven't adapted that. Everything else in the education, the way we view math, the way we view science, the way we teach everything else is sexual health. Everything's adapted and changed. The one thing that hasn't is addictions education. It's stuck on that just saying old philosophy that was delivered in the 1980s. Millions upon millions upon millions of dollars have been poured into just saying no campaigns. They do not work. They work for who they would have worked, who, who just like, hey, why just say no? You're either going to listen to that or not. What next? You're not building any strategies. You're not bringing any drug education to them about what drug effects drug ha drugs have on people. You're not talking about the benefits of some people, times people using drugs. Like, you could go for a beer and be totally fine. I know people that can go on the weekends and have a have Coke and they're totally fine. The one thing that we're dealing with now that we've never had to deal with is the tainted drug supply. Like now, if you snort Coke, chances are there's fentanyl in it. So you're probably gonna overdose. And as a result, you're probably gonna die. So that's where things like harm reduction, having a naloxone kit available, having your friends trained up on naloxone kit that you use drugs with. That's a pragmatic way to deal with somebody who you know is going to do drugs. We know people are going to use drugs. Now let's let's start acting like we know that that's going to happen and we can address it that way. And a lot of times people say, oh, you just gave up on them or you just whatever. No, no, no. I'm pragmatic. I know what's going to happen. And you can't tell me that it's not because it's currently happening. And if our drug education was even remotely effective, we would not be in this situation. I remember you, you, know, you talked about this uh, kind of tangentially earlier, but I remember reading an article in the Winnipeg free press and they were saying the hardcore 10% of users accounted for like 30% of their total healthcare budgets because they were racking up EMT and cop hours and spending time and resources interacting with the justice system. And it, it wasn't working for them. And I remember talking with a friend who's in addictions counseling. He, he does uh, therapy. He works with addicts and he was saying, we need to talk about, we need to lift up the bandaid and talk about the wound rather than focusing on the bandaid, which isn't working. He's like, people most often aren't choosing to consume or use drugs because they just want to do the drugs. He said they're often it's an unhealthy coping mechanism for other problems in their life. Yeah. And I, when you were talking about it, I circle back to those ideas and I can't really shake it, you know? Yeah. Like, so like when I first started doing this work, I've been, been in nonprofits for like 15, 16 years and I've been at uh, prey harm reduction now for just over eight. And so when I first started in the field, uh, I remember, I was very bright eyed and bushy tailed and I was like, I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to change the world. And, uh, I was a, I was a support services coordinator. So I was leading our, our case management team. And I had a woman who hardcore, hardcore drug user, um, you know, and, and she just gotten out of jail. And so then was taking her to, to a housing viewing and, and she we were talking about, it. I said, you know, like maybe now's a good time. You, 
you, um, you know, she hadn't used when she was incarcerated and was like, maybe that was a good time. And she just looked at me dead in the eye and she said, look, uh, I, I know I'm going to use, um, don't try to stop me. Cause then you're going to be like those assholes that always judge me for what I'm doing. I'd like us to have an uh, open discussion and an open relationship and talk about really what's happening with me. And she just said, your little pep talk is not going to cause me to change my use. She was like, I got right for 12 years from the time she was a little, little kid. She's like, your little pep talk isn't going to make that go away for me. So don't fucking bother. And what I heard from that was I was assuming a bunch of things about her. I was assuming a bunch of shit about my own ability and my skill set. And really what she needed was somebody that she could just talk to in her life. She didn't have any of those people. And I've had way better relationships and way better success with folks when I just become somebody that they can talk to rather than somebody's going to talk at them, you know, and when we're looking at, you know, like Saskatchewan's got a dark past them. Like we had the residential schools, last one closed in 96, you know, now we got the foster care system, not to mention the prison system. Like there's an overwhelmingly, those systems are super flawed. They produce a lot of trauma, a lot of neglect, a lot of isolation. Um, not being with your family can do just as much harm as, you know, the next thing. And so what we're dealing with all oftentimes with folks who access services with us is they don't belong. They don't feel like they belong. They don't feel like they have a community. And so us providing that sense of community uh, is really key to them finding out who they are uh, truly, not through the substance use. Maybe they're gonna maybe they're gonna use forever, maybe not. That doesn't give me the right to judge them and I, I shouldn't be, uh, I shouldn't uh, put my, my morals on them. So. You know, if, if, you're, if you drink alcohol and I come into your life and say, you need to stop drinking alcohol, you're going to think, who the fuck is this guy? You know, and I, I say, well, I, I view it as a problem for you. Well, you might not view it as a problem for you. That doesn't matter. I, my morals, it's a problem. So I'm a teetotaler. I don't do anything. So I view your substance use as a problem. Does that make me right and you wrong? No, it makes me right to me and you right to you. Like... You know, and so we, and I'm coming off as an asshole when you start preaching those things. And when we're looking at, when we're looking at um, our approach to dealing with addictions, it's that pragmatic approach about people are going to use, we're going to be able to touch the surface, the volume, we're so behind the eight ball in volume. You can build 50 treatment centers. That's still not enough. You'll fill them up today and there'll be a backlog the next day, you know? And so we need approach to deal with like that 10% that you're talking about. The healthcare system isn't built for that 10%. That's why they're that's why they eat up so much cost. It's because a ton of time and energy and money went into dealing with that other 90%. But what we see with this 10% is minimal effort, minimal effort. You know, and you can you can look to the overdose crisis. We've had minimal government action on the overdose crisis from all levels, federal, uh, provincial, municipal, to the overdose crisis. We've had almost minimal government action because the, the system isn't built for this group of people and they don't want to do changes because that's going to actually mean they have to invest. And so until we see some level of real investment and listening to people and listening to service providers who work with this population in terms of what would work, not just doubling down on the old tried and true, we're going to build treatment centers, rehab centers, 
uh, type of thing. You need you need a spectrum of care when you're dealing with this population. And right now we just have this bulk in treatment, methadone, uh, you know, and and um, and detox centers. Well, what about the folks that aren't ready or that we can't get in? We need options for them. And before you can say, we'll wait it out till they're ready. Well, now you can't wait it out till they're ready because we have people dying at such a high rate. And when the overdose crisis first started happening, people said, well, you know, you see it on the message boards. People saying, well, this problem will work itself out. People are just going to die. That's not the way this works. Vancouver's been in an overdose crisis for five years now. It's not working itself out. It's just getting worse. More people are dying. Like, that's the funny thing about addictions. Drug dealers will find people to sell to. <laughs> like, they're in, they're in the money-making business. So they're going to find people to sell to. And if those people are going to get addicted to harder and harder drugs, it's not just going to be the smoking pot in high school anymore. It's not. It's you're doing you're doing powders, you're doing manufactured drugs, you're doing lace drugs, and so we really do need to address this before you know it's too late. And most would argue it's almost getting to that point where, like, um, the amount of inaction is starting to get really discouraging. Where that's where we say, like, ours comes into place. We weren't going to let government budgets dictate community need. Community needs dictate community needs. We're listening to listening to folks that access services with us. We're listening to science. We're looking at best case scenarios for and best practice for dealing with this. And a consumption site is part of that spectrum of care. And so we need a place that people go. And a lot of times people don't want people using drugs in the community because they see it in parks. They see the needles on and they see the needles on the street. Well, we we're solving those issues. Bring them into our facility. Let us deal with it internally. We'll handle everything we can in-house. We're very good at that. That's what we do. But a lot of times it comes down to, actually, I don't think those people have a right to live. And if that's what your argument comes down to, I don't have a fucking time for you. And I'm not going to waste my energy and effort trying to explain to somebody who really, this doesn't affect their fucking life in any way, shape, or form. Why do I need to onboard that person instead of dealing with the fact that I had 323 people die in the province? You know, why does your moral objection supersede somebody else's right to live? And you can't tell me the system fucking works when you have record deaths coming on board. If this was COVID and we had record deaths coming on board, which we do, you can't tell us that our approach is working. We have to do adaptions, changes. And you constantly see that by the government on the COVID file. Okay, little tweaks here, little tweaks there. Like They're constantly doing that. That's because that's best practice. That's what they need to do. We need to take that same approach with addictions where it's constant adaption. And that's where a program like ours comes into place. Our advocacy approach, that's what we advocate for, is constant change and adaption. But like Regina clearly needs a consumption site, probably needs more than one. You know, Saskatoon's no different. We got pockets starting to flare up in City Park and downtown and Prince Albert, Yorkton, or Battleford, LaRange, Meadow Lake. Like you're looking at we really do need to look at this holistically and we need some real level of investment to address it. Humanization seems like a word that I, I keep pausing on when you said it doesn't matter what they think you have to look at how many lives does it take before you start to act? What's the best way to humanize people who otherwise have been dehumanized by the rest of society? Uh, I think there's parts of that. So when I, when I, we are looking at how to tackle the, overdose crisis, HIV crisis in Saskatchewan. Um, you know, I really looked at the civil rights movement in, in the States early on. Um, every The movement needed MLK and Malcolm X equally. You know, you need somebody who's 
trying to be proactive, build bridges and that type of stuff. And you have other people that need to be, take no shit. And I think that that's what we need because you, you, you're going to spend so much time trying to convince a very small group of people. When you talk to people about addictions in Saskatchewan, everybody fucking knows somebody who has an addiction, whether it's an uncle who's an alcoholic or a, a cousin who's doing cocaine when they shouldn't or whatever. Everybody knows somebody. And so, but there's a very small vocal minority, but they're very loud that try to make it seem like they speak for a lot of people. You saw that with the COVID um, march. Everybody's acting like it was a shit ton of people. That was fucking maybe 60 people. Fuck those people. Like I have zero time for those people. Like they, I'm not going to spend my time trying to convince those folks. But when we're looking at the other folks, the way we humanize this is we talk about addictions in their family. We talk about addictions in our community. And I had somebody that I grew up with die from overdose, you know, and really it, it, it threw a bunch of people for a loop. Um, you know, it threw a bunch of people for a loop, myself included, and I'm immersed in this world. And so we need to talk about that, that that's actually the cause of somebody's losing their life and us losing a connection. And I can tell you that somebody doing bad right now, that doesn't mean that they're going to be doing bad forever. It really doesn't. Like if you have, if you have somebody who, um, you know, I can think of my uncle. So I have an uncle who was an alcoholic for years, like 20 or 30 years, you know, bad. And last 15 years of his life, 20 years of his life, he was sober. You know, and he really turned the corner, but it took that amount of time to heal whatever was happening within him. Anytime I think of somebody living through really rough addictions, I think of my uncle. And I think, would I want somebody to treat my uncle the way these people are talking about these folks? Would I want somebody talking about a family member the way I would? The answer is no. And when you, when you go out and talk to people in Saskatchewan about addictions, you need to have a very upfront conversation that people use drugs here. We're not pretending, we're not hiding it anymore. We need to get this all out into the forefront and talk about it on a real level about what you would like to see from your family and your friends. And God forbid, if your kids ever got addicted, how would you want people to treat them and view them? And would you want them to be able to talk to you about it? Or do you want them to hide about it and do it in the bathroom and then you're gonna find their dead body in the morning? Cause that happens a lot in this province, a lot. And so we need to start talking about addictions. We need to start talking about drug use. And the way we're gonna humanize that is by talking about what's happening with our families in their communities. And you can't tell me that it's not in your community because the coroner's report uh, releases where overdoses are happening. Every corner of the province is that people die, multiple people die from overdoses. So this is happening and it's not okay. And we need to talk about how the approach that we're using is not working. The approach that the province is using right now is not working. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this situation. So we need to be very proactive and very aggressive about policy changes and programming implementations and things like that because we really do need to get a handle on this before we're 13 years on having the worst overdose death rate in the country. I don't want to be 13 years, or at that point, it'll be 26 years and 13 years, 26 years of worst HIV outcomes in the, in the country and 13 years of worst addictions outcome in the province. I'm a very proud Saskatchewan person. Like, I think we can be the best at whatever the fuck we do when we set our minds to it in the country. I don't know why addictions can't be better than that. You have to set the bar high so that we can go after that. And in order to do that, we have to talk about what's really happening because a funny thing happens once people understand what's happening, they actually want to deal with it. You know, that's how Telemiracle happened. Like people talking about the needs in the community and then the community responded in a beautiful way. And now it's standing and it's of course we're going to support people with disabilities. 
like obviously, but it didn't start that way when the disability movement started 30 years ago or whatever it was, you know, but they went out and they claimed that space and they made the talk about what's really happening. And now we have, you know, we have the SED program, we have disability rights advocates, we have disability legislation, like all those things are integrated now and it's part of the norm. And if we try to remove it, people would say, you're, you're not elected or you're not, you're clearly not somebody we should listen to. We need to get that way around addictions as well. We're, we're really doing it. We're really talking about it openly and we're implementing best practice and we're, we're talking about it regularly. This has been really heavy, really heartbreaking, but I want to circle back to who's doing things right. And I wanted to reflect upon uh, this summer, we had to call the Queen City guys, the needle reclamation. They came within 15 minutes of our call. They picked up the needles that we had, we had found in the warehouse district and they were just like, thanks, here you go. Thanks for giving us a call. It was a really positive interaction. And I kept thinking back to when I had interviewed a doctor more than 10 years ago, and this was in Moose Jaw, and he was saying they had a clean needle exchange and they had over a 90% reclamation of needles because users who were, were taking the needles and then uh, bringing them back were dedicated to that activity. They had full buy-in. It was an opera. The doctor had told me it cost pennies for those needles and the needles weren't just getting thrown randomly out into the community. They were bringing the sharps back. And I said to him, why would they be so dedicated to bringing clean or dirty needles, used needles back to you? And the doctor said to me, they don't want to use used needles. They don't want to use dull devices. It hurts. It doesn't feel good. It destroys the tissue. It, it's painful. He was saying they're maybe ashamed of their use, but they want to use in a way that is the least discomforting to them. It's not, uh, it's a, it's not a zero sum game for them. And I, it struck me. I was like, okay. And he goes, they will actually, some of the people that he worked with will actually go out and look for needles and bring them in, even if they weren't using them to ensure their neighborhood is cleaner and also to ensure they have continued access to a safe supply of needles. And I, I keep thinking about that doctor and I keep thinking about the, the queen city needle guys. They're great folks. Who's doing it? Well, let's, let's end on a great note. Who's doing great things. Uh, you know, that's, I think when you're looking at in globally or in Canada, not many of us like uh, like for like when you compare Saskatchewan to what's happening in other parts of Canada, I think shining shining little shining hopes in Saskatchewan. You know, Queen City is for sure in Regina. I think they're they're leading the way down there uh, and being proactive um, on addressing stigma on, and taking responsibility for their community. Um, you know, I think. I think they're doing a really good job down there. Um, you know, AIDS program South Saskatchewan is doing what they can. We would like to see them open up a consumption site and vocally say that they would. Um, you know, but they run a good needle exchange program. They run a good um, HIV education program, peer programming, that type of thing. Um, up here, you know, I think I think we're the best at what we do. Like, quite frankly, um, you know, but uh, you know, there's little groups like PLWA. They're um, their little HIV org, uh, they're trying to do their best they can. They're doing pretty good work. Um, you know, you see um, Saskatoon Tribal Council, 
Um, they're doing some pretty good work with their needle exchange next door and, you know, the Know Your Status program, like um, which the Saskatoon Tribal Council runs. Uh, that's like a, the UN has come in and studied how to do that program for community mobilization around HIV um, in remote populations. That That's best practice, um, you know, and then I think there are like a lot of times we focus on the, 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 we can focus on the negative, like you're saying, but like Saskatchewan is the third province ever to have universal HIV and hepatitis C medication coverage. That only came into place two years ago. That's a new win. Canada's National HIV Testing Day came out of Saskatchewan. It started as a citywide effort in Saskatoon, then morphed to provincially the next year, and then went nationally the year after that. And when we were looking at implementing that, uh, we, we emailed the province. I think we got emailed back in like 20 minutes saying, great, like, what can we do? And it was like a full steam ahead effort to endorse this. And that's now when you hear the federal government talk about it, you hear the province talk about it, you hear multiple provinces and territories talk about it. It's everywhere in Canada. That all started with little bitty Saskatchewan. So that's a win. Um, we're the second, we're the, we're the third province ever to have safer uh, drug pipes for free uh, in needle exchanges, which are significantly reduced the um, chance for a spread of HIV. Um, you know, I think you're looking at Access Place in Prince Albert. Um, you know, you're looking at North Battleford Family um, Clinic in North Battleford. They do a well, a good job. Signs in Yorkton does a really good job. Um, Sanctum in Saskatoon does a good job. You see, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of people are trying to do a lot. The problem that I always have is people are trying to do a lot with very little. I think there needs to be a bigger investment. But imagine if Queen City had a paid like two paid time physicians that could patrol and pick up rigs. They could do amazing work with that. Imagine if AIDS program so Saskatchewan was funded to run a run a safe consumption site on top of their additional services. They could do amazing things with that. But we're all having to squeeze a penny in. And so I think I think when we start to see some real investment, we're gonna see real outcome changes. Um, you know, and then on top of that, you look at police services in the city and even in Regina. They're, they're calling for harm reduction. Not many police services in Canada call for investments in harm reduction. Yeah, our, both of our police chiefs in Regina and in Saskatoon have advocated for increased harm reduction. They want to take a proactive, really realistic look at addictions. And so I think all the pieces are there to do this well and do things differently. The question is, is the investment going to flow in so that we can actually be best practice? Uh, you know, even us, we're like a little operational, say, consumption site on fundraising. But I think I think the stage is set for us to do some really special things and addictions in this province. We just need we just need some investment. Tell me if I'm wrong. As a taxpayer, I'd much rather see a person with an addictions issue being dealt with by social workers than police. I don't think that's fair to police. Yeah, police also would like to see that. That's the funny part. It's like when you talk to when you talk to rank and file cops, to senior senior leaders, police commission boards, everybody wants to see that. So let's see that. Like, you know, but like you're we're gonna have to invest in this issue. If the amount of money that we're spending on it right now is not sustainable. So we need to shift how that money is invested. And the way that we did that was we got the police a police a new unit for Pleasant Hill, they work with Ogajitawak Patrol Group, who we fund, to work on community safety. Uh, and then they're connecting and referring people into addiction services. I just got a call today from a business owner in the neighborhood that was talking about how they saw police dealing with somebody who was, you know, high needs, addictions, they were in the middle of psychosis, and the cops talked to them and got them to come down to our building 
you know, not too far from where it was, but they got them to come down to our building and talk to our staff. That's a win, you know, because now we're connecting with them and getting them connected to all these supports. But if we're not, um, if we're not working together, it's going to get really ugly. And so it doesn't need to be this policing versus addictions. Policing are on board with how we should be handling addictions. We just need the investment. And when you look at the way uh, our agency, we announced their fundraising campaign, we fucking didn't have a pot to piss in. We didn't know whether it was going to work or not to open up the camp. We've sold out of two, two lines of clothing. We've had over a thousand individual donors. Businesses are coming out on droves supporting us. You know, the community backs what this is happening from all levels. I talk to people who are conservatives. I talk to people who are ultra liberal. You know, everybody sees when you talk about the dollars and cents, the humanitarian approach, and the, the admittance that the system isn't working, the community buys in that we need to do things differently. So let's fucking do that. Like, we could be, we could be leading the country on how to deal with addictions in a proactive, meaningful way. I want that just as much as the next person, but it's going to take a full spectrum of care, and we really do need to see that level of investment. And we're hoping we're going to start to see the, the tides turn on that in this next budget. We don't know for sure, but we're hopeful. But we really do need to deal with things differently in Saskatchewan. I don't think, no matter who you are, is that if you say, is it working? They're going to say, no, it's not. And so that's where that we come in. We want to do things differently. If people want to get in contact with your organization, if they want to get in contact with you because they do see the value or they want to maybe donate resources, where should they go? Uh, you can go to prairiehr.ca. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, our Instagram game's pretty fire and we have a lot of good memes and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and if you are interested in starting up a program like this in your community, you can email us, uh, the emails on the website, um, and we can help getting you connected because we do know that, uh, other groups are looking at doing what we do in their communities, which we're happy to support local organizations and local folks to do. Um, yeah, it's not only like if you can donate, that's great, but it's also about, educating yourself maybe it's just you can instead of you don't have the money to donate but maybe you can get trained up and get an naloxone kit so you can understand the importance of carrying naloxone in your community that's a win that's going to start changing conversations around your friends and family circles that's what we're going after too so but also buy our clothing when we when we launch it we we, we have really good clothing uh, designs and uh we're pretty happy with with the way things have gone so far but uh yeah i think uh, our website's the best option and then our social medias Jason, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Rebels, thanks for listening today. If you have any additional questions or comments about this episode, be sure to join us on our brand new Facebook group page, The Rebellion Brewing Podcast. I'm also proud to let you know that we're members of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. It's a one-stop shop for tons of locally produced shows from across our province. You can find them at saskpodcastnetwork.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Untapped so you don't miss out on the latest in Saskatchewan craft beer news. Thank you for joining the Rebellion.